There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Welcome to No Mere Mortals Cover to Cover series. The Cover to Cover series is a chronological journey through the moments in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation centered on the main character of Jesus Christ. In 2020, the Lord directed the start of the Cover to Cover series that originally began as weekly installments for Sunday morning youth teachings at a local church. In 2023, the Cover to Cover series will move to being a podcast series and Lord willing will continue to be weekly installments. Father, we just thank you for this time in your word. And Lord, I just pray that even though the flow of the morning may seem a little bit different right now, uh, God, that nothing has changed by this amazing opportunity we have to come before you, to experience you and hear from you through your word, by your spirit. And God, I do pray that we would come this morning with open hearts, open minds, and Lord, that you would just keep all distractions aside that would be able to just, uh, again, focus on who you are and what you have for us this morning. In your son's name, amen. You guys can have a seat. Now, again, as we've been making our way through the book of Deuteronomy, last week uh, we encountered a concept that, though it's difficult, it's not very novel. In fact, you say it and you're kind of like, well, yeah, but again, it should be something very concrete for us to, to have at the foundation of our life, which is simply this, God is God and you are not. And I know we can kind of be like, oh, like well, yeah, but, but again, if we just stop for a moment and let that sink in. Just stop and go, okay, but, but what, what should that mean for my entire life? That there are moments that we say, well, yeah, that's simple, but is that something we also so easily forget? We know, and, and here's just what I want to throw you guys. Don't smash yourselves. You have an enemy who's going to come and throw accusations at you. But here's the thing. It is a natural humanistic, and just understand that our heart is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. And God knows that it is easy for us to forget that very simple truth, that he is God and we are not. That's why, as we looked at last week in Deuteronomy 8.19, he says, Then it shall be, if you by any means forget the Lord your God, and follow other gods, and serve them, and worship them, I testify against you this day that you shall surely perish. See, there's something that just, it's, it's something that we fall to. Paul speaks to it in Romans, and last week we saw uh, Pastor Joe Foch has this, this concept or this quote where he says that prosperity breeds idolatry, that something happens as we receive the blessings of God that we transfer instead of worshiping the one who created in which all things that are good come from, we start to worship the things created instead of the creator. And again, this, this is not something that is really that uncommon, in fact, a couple, uh, it's been a while now, when we were going through the book of Exodus, if you guys remember, this, brought this up, that when we got to the golden calf scene, there's a pastor by the name of Chuck Missler, and uh, he would tell the story that he had friends who, who aren't believers, and they watched the movie The Ten Commandments. And it gets to the golden calf scene towards the end of the movie, and their friends go, nope, nope, there's no way. They, they said, we're, we're calling bogus on the whole thing. There is no way 
that any human would have gone through that experience of coming out of Egypt, the plagues, the crossing of the... There's no way that anybody who experienced that would start worshiping this golden calf. And it was just something kind of unique to stop and think about, that these people who don't believe in the Bible go, that's impo- there's no way. Nobody could have experienced what they experienced and then make that mistake. And yet that's exactly what Scripture says is what happens. And again, as these people are getting ready to head into this promised land, that God is saying, look, this is something that, that's in our flesh. That we, there's, there's no else to say it, we're the dog from up, squirrel. It, it's the moment we feel comfy and taken care of. Again, that cat and dog theology, but God starts blessing us, that then all of a sudden we just get our minds off. And he's saying, but if by any means you should forget that, because here's the thing, you were made to worship. It is part of who you are. And he's saying, if by any means you forget who is God, you will end up putting that worship to self, and then that gets transferred to these rebellious spirits, and God is saying, as he says in Galatians 4, 9, but now after you have known God, or rather known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage. But God's saying, how is this? How, how is this thing that, that, that you, you know God, you're known by God, and yet we're so easily entangled and ensnared by the tools of these weak, beggarly elements? Tools like sexual immorality, substance abuse, wealth, spiritual enlightenment, self-righteousness, power, All of these are tools of those beggarly, weak elements used to ensnare humanity. Because the truth is also in that passage in Galatians, it says that these rebellious spirits, that they are zealous for you and they want your zeal. They want you to start worshiping self because they know at some point you're going to turn from self-worship to worshiping them. And that they are after you. And God is giving a warning here saying, no, they have a destiny that I don't want you to share in. He wants good things for you and saying, but if you make yourself one with these rebellious spirits, you share in their destiny. This destiny is told to us in Psalm 82. It says, the gods know nothing. They understand nothing. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods. You are all sons of the most high, but you will die like mere mortals. You will fall like every other ruler. That's why we read in Deuteronomy 8.20 that he says again as a warning to them, as the nations which the Lord destroys before you, so you shall perish because you would not be obedient to the voice of the Lord your God. He says because you would get your minds off of him and who he is and focus on the things of this world that they ensnare and bring you into a bondage. He's a God who wants to bring you out of bondage. And these things that, that bring us into bondage, it's nothing new. First John chapter 2, verse 16 says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. That again, these tools of these beggarly elements, it is really, they're just taking a lesson from the one that they follow, the nakash from the garden, Lucifer himself. In Genesis 3, 6, we were told, So when the woman saw the tree was good for food, the lust of the flesh. It was pleasant to the eyes, the lust of the eyes, and tree desirable to make one wise, the pride of life. She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. So we see that all that is in this world, these these tools of these elements, as they follow 
the Nakash, Lucifer himself, is that there's these three things that they're really going to go to. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. And you might find yourself in this moment going, okay, so we see that Adam and Eve fell to that. What, what chance do we have? The amazing thing is we have an answer to every temptation. Right from Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 4, verse 1 through 11, where in the desert, Satan himself tempts Jesus. Turn these rocks into bread. And Jesus responds out of what we read last week in Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. That he might make you know that man should not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. As Jesus would declare himself to be in John chapter 6, 35, that he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Cast yourself down. Cast yourself down and, 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 and know that, that God's angels will take care of you. And he responded at a Deuteronomy 6.16, which we read the week prior. You shall not tempt the Lord your God as you tempted him in Massa. And again, it was at Massa where when the people were thirsty, already falling to the first temptation. When they were thirsty and God wanted to meet their need, they looked at their situation and declared God to be a brute and unkind and one who just wanted everyone to die and be miserable. You brought us out into this wilderness so that we would just starve. And God says, quite the opposite. I brought you here to this place so that you would know that all you need comes from him. And when we looked at that, again, something very, to, to understand that this, not to test God, is when we looked at that, that Greek word, that, that pizarro, is that in Hebrews, there's this amazing moment where the, this word, aperastos, is only used one time in all of Scripture about God. And it says that God doesn't tempt you because he is literally God without temptation. And in Hebrews, it says that Jesus was tempted in all ways, yet without sin. So we looked at last week how a single word in context of its sentence takes on a different meaning. We looked at these, these are things that, again, this isn't me just trying to play fast and loose with Greek because, you know, well, you guys don't know Greek and I think I'm going to try and act smart. It's, it's a concept you understand. It's not that hard. It's, again, we looked at the word minute or minute, spelled exactly the same, but yet in the context of its sentence means something completely different. We looked at the word fair. It could mean like the pasty guy before you. It could mean, hey, that's agreeable, or the place with the big old Ferris wheel that everybody rides. But the context of the sentence lets you know that. And so when you look at this word, it's saying that God himself is without temptation. Because that word temptation in its context by James means to basically bait and hook. Saying that God will never do that to you. God doesn't set out a bait on a hook. See, when we see about God calling people to be fishers of men, is that they're not fishing with bait and hook. They're casting out a net. God is not a God who will set out the bait and hook. And again, it's one of these moments where you have to look at your life circumstances. And if your circumstances cause you to question the goodness of God or his word, then you have misunderstood your circumstance, God's character, or his word. And then lastly, again, he declares to Jesus, Satan, looking at him in the wilderness, saying, bow to me, and I will give you the kingdoms of this world. And he responded again out of Deuteronomy 6.13, you shall fear the Lord your God and serve him only. 
As Proverbs tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. And as we're told earlier in Deuteronomy 5, that for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's where one gains understanding and understand and know God. Know his passionate love for you and live abundantly in that love. Now, as we look at how Jesus answered every single one of those temptations, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, answering all of those with God's character by his word, there is a, a moment here, and, and I think if anyone's honest with themselves in this room, they might go, but yeah, but he was God. So what? I mean, okay, he faced temptation. He was God himself. But if you guys understand in any way how to measure force, the only way to truly know the force of something is the object at which you're exerting force on doesn't move. Because the moment it gives way, that force has been abated just that much. See, when we have a God who says, Jesus, as told to us in Hebrews, chapter 4, verse 14 through 16, seeing that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. And so understand that Jesus walked this earth, and when the enemy brought the full force of temptation, and now each one of you, you know yourselves, you know those areas that you, you give. Maybe you have that area where you're able to stand strong, but we all have those areas that, that we, we bend and buckle to. And it's saying that Jesus experienced the full force of temptation. He never buckled. He never moved. Why can Jesus understand exactly to where he understands it deeper than you would even understand? That Jesus comes and goes, I get it. I know the force. In fact, he says, I know the full force of that temptation because I took it and I never even buckled. To measure out the full force of temptation and why. Why did he subject himself through all of that for this? Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we might obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He took it all on, the full force to say, I know exactly, in fact, I know it deeper than you know. And he doesn't do it to look on you with condemnation and condemnation, but instead he looks to say, I understand and I did that so you know I am here to help. Let me take that on for you. Jesus has no problem saying, are you feeling like you're going to buckle a bit? Get behind me, I got you. I've done it before and I'll do it every single time. I will take the force of that so that you don't have to bear it. As we're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. And let me again, again, just bring this out. As we looked at this and we, we're, we're talking about, you know, you, you could kind of bag on yourself about being quick to forget. Guys, we are. I love the song. It says, prone to wander. It is, we just are. We ha- again, our heart is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. God pours out his blessings, and we start worshiping the blessings instead of the one who gave us those things. And then one of the tricks of the enemy is just about the time you buckle to that thing, he starts to whisper in your ear about how disgusting you are, about how you're a loser who always fails to these things, and no one can understand what you're going through. No one knows what it's like to be you. And yet God comes along and goes, no, this is, nothing is taken, nothing you're taking on is is unique to you. In fact, it's common to everyone. 
that this temptation that you're experiencing, he says, I've taken on the full force and you're not some horrible, disgusting outlier. He's saying, no, everyone's got these things and nothing has overtaken you except such as common to men. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. That he, he allowed himself to, full, to face the full force of temptation, to stand its way to say, when you face that thing, don't listen to the lie that you're some horrible, uniquely disgusting person who, you know, because you, you should know better. He's saying, no, it, it is a common thing. And I stood here to be your shield, your city of refuge, to go before you and be your rear guard. He has no problem with saying, guys, just drop behind. I got, I got this. And showed us how he did it by the character of God, answering all three of those. Now with that, guys, let's look at uh, Deuteronomy chapter 19, starting in verse 15. One shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. So someone can't just, one person can't just say something and it's a fact. But God instead sets up the system where he's saying, look, you have to have by two or three people, a matter is established as fact. In John chapter 5, verse 39 through 47, Jesus said, you search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. So he's saying, you're looking for the scriptures, trying to find life, and he's saying, all of scripture testifies of Jesus. Every single book. As Hebrews would say, the volume of the book is about him. He says, but you're not willing to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive honor from men, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God in you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. How can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes only from God? Do not think that I shall accurse you to the Father. There is one who, who accuses you, and that's Moses in whom you trust. For if you believed in Moses, you would believe in me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe in my words? So by a matter of two or three witnesses, it's established as fact. And Jesus looks at these religious leaders saying, you're scouring the scriptures. And he's telling you, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. I've got five witnesses by Moses. They're talking about me. I've got five articles that all speak and testify of me. And then in Luke chapter 24, verse 44 and 45, then he said to them, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you that all things must be fulfilled which are written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. So God sets in, and guys, understand this. There's this amazing thing here. Well, God will set a standard based on his character and then by his character upholds that standard. He didn't just come along and say, I'm God, that's it. He used Moses, the prophets, the Psalms. Now, I get it. We grow up and we look at this thing we call the Bible and we go, well, but isn't that just a book? Guys, any, any scholar worth their weight will tell you, we're, we don't hold a book. We hold 66. It's a library. And Jesus comes along and says, by the standard set by God of two or three witnesses, I call upon Moses who testifies me. The prophets testify me and Psalm testify me. So by two or three witnesses, it is a fact. 
He is who He said He is by His Word. Verse 16, if a false witness rises against any man to testify against him of wrongdoing, then both men in the controversy shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who serve in those days. And the judges shall make careful inquiry. And indeed, if the witness is a false witness who has testified falsely against his brother, then you shall do to him as he thought to have done to his brother. You so, you, so you shall put away the evil from among you. And, and again, this, this is something that I, I think it's lost. And we, we look at, you know, just different heinous crimes and we're quick to point out evil. And I, I just love that God says, guys, how do we forget this? Lying is evil. Oh, it's just a little white lie. No, he says, you need to put this evil away from you. And to be a false witness, to, to lie, there's something interesting. I don't know if you guys caught this. Imagine if this existed in our system today, where it says, if you go up on that stand, and in a court, you falsely testify, you lie to try and get someone convicted. It says, when it is found out, you take on their punishment. So, if you try and stand up and say, he's a murderer, come before the judges and the priests, and they carefully inquire, and they go, he's not a murderer. Wait. In fact, it sounds like you guys had beef. You guys were arguing and you just tried to get somebody the death penalty because you wanted to take his property. And in this system, it says, when that's found out, you face the penalty of murder. You, as a false witness, would take on the penalty that you were trying to accuse somebody of. Imagine how drastically that would change our courtrooms today. And now I'm not one who, who is who's saying, oh, yeah, because, you know, get them. I, I hope more die. No, I am not looking. I, I, like I, we should not take any joy in the death of the wicked. But I'll tell you this, I'd rather have that than multiple innocent people. Innocent blood be shed over and over. Verse 20 and 21. And those who remain shall hear and fear. And hereafter, they shall not again commit such evil among you. Your eye shall not pity Life shall be for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, and foot for foot. So God's saying, look, when that person's caught lying, don't pity them. Oh, no, they totally lied. I told you what happened. I told you what happened. This evil needs to be removed because, again, we've slidden so far away that God goes, where does it, it starts with lying. Lying makes everything worse. I got to learn that the hard way growing up. I hope none of you ever have to have this experience. My parents promised me, if you lie, it will go much worse for you. I'm telling you, I got to learn that the hard way. Be so much better than just be up front. You did something wrong, tell them, because if they catch you or not, I, man, the stuff that would come down. You guys don't need my experiences. Maybe you have your own. But I'm just telling you, lying makes everything worse. At a minimum, guys, and, and here's the thing. This just needs to be brought up because this is another one of the enemy's tricks. There's this, there's this thought out there sometimes of this secret sin or that somehow, well, it doesn't really hurt anyone. What's the fact? It doesn't hurt anyone. Guys, that's such a lie, and here's why. Every time we lie, we retreat into the darkness every time. 
John chapter 3 tells us that, we, that men love dark rather than light. And, and again, sometimes we, we want to make that bigger. That is, it is being deceptive. It is wanting to hide things. And if nothing else, even if you're trying to be properly motivated, oh, I don't want to hurt someone. When you pull back into the dark, you are putting strains and fracturing relationships with people who care about you. There is no such thing where you can retreat into your own little world where you think you're just hurting yourself because there are people who love you, who care for you. And when you retreat away, you fracture those relationships and you hurt the ones who love you. So it's a lie. It doesn't exist. You in your life cannot just self-implode and then not greatly cause a ripple effects that breaks the heart of those around you. Because they love you and they care for you. So God is saying, look, we need to set this line here. Because when we don't set the line here and call this thing evil that is evil, it's so easy to fall way back. And then we start setting these ridiculous standards. Again, one of my favorites, I think you guys have all, well, most of you have maybe seen, is when we see a character being told by another character, hey, those guys wanted to eat you, but I kept them from doing that. And we get to this great moment in this movie, right, where this guy is being told over and over in his life, hey, these guys wanted to eat you, and I said no. And finally, we get some rational thinking here where the guy looks at the and is like, you keep acting like not eating somebody is a good thing. That's what we do with our wicked, deceitful heart is, is we, we don't call something evil, and we slide all the way back to and we go, well, <laughs> I'm not a cannibal. People wanted to eat you alive, and I said no. Oh, well, thank you for being so amazingly awesome that you said no to cannibalism. Is that where you drew your line? No to cannibalism. Okay, good to know. And we want high fives with that. And yet he's saying, I, I don't want this thing in you because it, it's, it's a slow fade. It's a slow fade. I know, again, it might seem a, a little corny. There's a song out there, and I love it, but it's based on the, the children's nursery rhyme, right? Be careful little eyes what you see. Be careful little ears what you hear. Because understanding is, again, guys, what we take in, what we look at, what we, what we bring into our life has an effect. But the song, the, the song that I like that's, that's the more modern take is it makes another point saying, but it's not because you have a God of condemnation. It's that there's others who are watching you. Whether you like it or not, the world is watching you. You have family who is watching you, and when you engage in these things that cause self-harm, it breaks their heart. And so here, he's saying, don't pity when justice is upheld. And that's another weird thing that's happened in this world. And again, we've seen over and over this character of God who says he's a God of decency and order, and justice is a good thing. Just ask any person who has had a grave injustice in their life. Ask yourself. If someone talks trash behind your back, you want justice. You want the truth to be known. Then why is it that when God says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and he upholds justice, that somehow he gets a bum rap? Oh, this means, come on, we're all wanting our, we want justice for ourselves. And God says that you're not the standard, he is. Don't pity this thing because he's holding the standard of justice. If you try, I mean, if you try and get a guy killed by calling him a murderer and putting him on death row, guy goes, once that's found out, you take his place. And don't pity that. Why? Because eye for an eye. And yet in Matthew chapter 5, verse 38 and 39, Jesus says these words. 
You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. And as we've looked at this phrase over and over, an eye for an eye. Again, I think you guys heard me talk about this recently. Uh, yet another movie that I watched within the last couple months. And throughout this movie, you keep hearing this phrase, a blood debt must be paid in blood. A blood debt must be paid in blood. If you guys know which movie I'm talking about, you know which one I'm talking about. And and all over, you keep hearing this phrase. And it just rung out to me as I kept hearing this over and over. This Chinese idiom that because of their television and because of their culture, it, it, it was just kind of a phrase to them. And so the movie used it to invoke a television mentality because they're going, oh, this takes me back to my days of, of watching Chinese television and they would use phrase like the blood debt must be paid in blood and they kept saying it over and over, this common phrase of a culture and yet not realizing the truth that rings out in that because when you take the phrase in Chinese characters, a blood debt must be paid in blood and you translate that directly over Not just the phrase, not just the thought, but the word-for-word translation is actually an eye for an eye. So what is God establishing here? He's saying an eye for an eye because a blood debt must be paid in blood. And Romans tells us that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Yes, a blood debt must be paid in blood, and that is what Jesus paid for you. He paid it all. He established and then, as true to his character, fulfilled the very standard he set where he said a blood debt must be paid in blood, and he fulfilled that for you. And before he would go to that cross in Mark chapter 14, as we look about this matter of fact, needing two or three witnesses to tell the truth, Let that be the lens by which now you look at this scene in Mark chapter 14. As Jesus faces the Sanhedrin, it says, Now the chief priests and all the council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. For many bore false witnesses against him, but their testimonies did not agree. So before Jesus goes to the cross, the Sanhedrin tries, someone just come up with a reason why we can put this guy to death. They sought the death penalty for Jesus. And even in all of their string pulling, their coordination, they couldn't even get testimonies to connect. It says, for many bore false witness against him, but their testimonies did not agree. Then some rose up and bore false witness against him, saying, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build another made without hands. But not even then did their testimonies agree. God sets up a standard that he fulfills and then when facing the scandalous Sanhedrin to put him on the cross, they can't even get two or three witnesses to actually align. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But he kept silent and answered nothing. Again, the high priest asked him, saying to him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. 
What do you think? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Then some began to spit on him, blindfolded him, and to beat him, and to say to him, prophesy. And the other officer struck him with the palms of their hand. Again, a standard that Jesus sets up. Where he says, you've heard an eye for an eye. And he's setting up, I'm going to fulfill that. He says, but to you, if they slap you on the face, be ready to turn the other cheek. And then he sits there and lets them spit on him. Blindfolded him. And if you guys don't understand why they would even do that. If you guys have ever been in any kind of wrestling match or even just a boxing match, your body is ready when it sees a fist coming. There are so many reactions that you don't even know that your body's... When you can't see where the hit's coming from, your body has no way to even prepare for it. You are taking on full, blunt force. They blindfolded him, so as they smacked him, he would experience the most pain from that hit as possible. His body couldn't even get ready to respond to it. So he calls you to live a life where you're ready to turn the other cheek, and then once again, by his own character, he upholds that. That's why in Matthew chapter 5, he also says, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. That you may be sons of your father in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and all the, and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. So again, God is not calling you to a standard that he doesn't fulfill. By two or three witnesses, it makes a fact. The law of Moses, the prophets, the Psalms, two or three, all declaring he is exactly who he said he was. And then when he sets the standard of an eye for an eye, a blood debt must be paid in blood, and he comes along and says, and I will fulfill that standard for you. That is how much he loves you. The one who says, I know the full force of what you're going through. You are not alone in this. And then tells you that when you were facing that unbearable pressure and you feel like you're about to break, he's saying, know that you're not some horrible, wicked, just disgusting thing that the enemy would want to tell you. But you were the one I loved and gave my life for you. And he says, I am ready to stand in the gap and take that all on for you. Let me be your refuge. Let me be your shield. He died not only to provide you with eternal life, but for you to have means and access to the one who can take on the full force of the enemy without flaw. To once again, be who we never could be. But by faith, rest in his completed work. As he lays out these standards for us to imitate and for us to know, as we're told in Romans 5, But God demonstrates his own love toward us. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Guys, again, when he says these things, I'm telling you to love your enemy. He never sets a standard that he doesn't then go before and fulfill, knowing that we are so prone to wander from that. He says, I will do that for you. I will be your escape. I will be that way by which you can stand. 
And he comes along to says, I told you to love your enemies. And then he lived it and actually did it by saying, while you were still his enemy, he died for you. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While you were his enemy, he reconciled you to the Father by the cross. Much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received the reconciliation. Guys, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time in your word. We thank you for who you are and who you have made us to be. God, I just pray right now that if there's anybody in this room who's feeling the burden and pressure of temptation, God, that they would hear your word spoken to them. That this is a common thing that you have defeated by your character and by your word. Your word that declares your character. That when the enemy seeks to use its same tricks of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, that we have an answer for every single one of those. And the answer is you. And God, that in our weakness, that's where your strength is seen so much more. God, that we would understand that you are the one who has made a way for us to have eternal life. And God, that you paid the debt that we never could. When you set that standard of an eye for an eye, a blood debt must be paid in blood. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You fulfilled that standard. That is your character because you are love. Father, would we live in that truth? Would we know you, know your love, and live abundantly in that? In your son's name, amen. The Cover to Cover series is part of No Mere Mortal. The No Mere Mortal ethos derives from the biblically grounded and inspired work of C.S. Lewis in The Weight of Glory. You can find more No Mere Mortal content, including the Cover to Cover series, on our website at nomeremortal.org. Follow us on Twitter, Truth, Facebook, YouTube, Rumble, and most major podcasting services. Subscribe, follow, like, comment, leave a review, and share. The music you've heard has been provided by Sicko. That's C-I-K-K-0. And you can find him at YouTube at Sicko's Beat Suck 797. My name is Bryce, and you are no mere mortal. <laughs>